Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Captivated Audience. My name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Marie Lundberg in Sweden. Delighted today to have two new participants on our podcast. So I'm going to hand it over to Marie for our first question. Thank you, Sam. Mark Saleh, Jeroen Hassan, welcome. Could I trouble you to get a little bit of our, your professional background, what company you work for, and which country you're based in? Thank you, Marie. So my name is Yaron, Yaron Khazan. I work currently as financial crime and compliance subject matter expert at Tetere, intuitive AI technology provider. My background is actually fighting financial crimes all my career. I started in the Israeli police in a special investigation unit where I was focused on terrorist financing investigations, the financial activity of organized crime groups, mainly working with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies all over the world. Later, I was part of the PwC forensics team in Israel and the global leadership for forensics in PwC. And I initiated the anti-money laundering practice in PwC Israel. As part of this, I was participating in global agreement and engagements with the global banks such as HSBC and other global banks. And this led me to the following role as the head of compliance at HSBC. So my last role before joining Tetaray was as the head of compliance at HSBC in Israel for two and a half years. And in the last almost three years, I'm a subject matter expert at Tetaray. Over to you then, Mark. Mark Saleh, give us a little bit of your background and where you're based, please. Thanks, Marie. So, uh, yeah, a bit of my background, I suppose for the last 20 odd years, I've been doing analytics and insight, driving business decisions, whether that's from credit risk uh, through to governance risk and compliance and, uh, and AML. And predominantly in the last sort of eight years or so, working very much within the AML arena of entity resolution, transaction monitoring and list management, my current role with Tetaray in uh, transaction monitoring. And you're based out of the UK? Hey, I'm based, uh, based in the UK, so I can sort of head up Thetaray for the UK, Ireland and the Nordics. Can I ask each of you, what's the topic that you're most passionate about when it comes to financial crime? So this is uh, also the reason why I work with Tetere today. I worked all my career chasing bad guys. And with Tetere, it's the first time I feel I'm one step ahead. So I think this is why I'm so passionate about it. First, I'm into fighting bad things and crimes that hurt us all, us and our kids and our society. Now I feel that I'm in good shape fighting that. I think I'll probably follow on from what Yaron said in terms of it's catching and finding the bad actors. And I think the opportunity to try and identify suspicious behavior and those unknown unknowns, patterns of behavior that are flowing through the uh, financial system to identify human trafficking, child trafficking, international wildlife trade. These are, these are topics that really excite you in being able to fight that fight and, uh, and take it to the bad actors. You know me, I love technology, I love the new things that are happening in the market. Could I trouble you to describe the nature of the technology used by Federay today? I think the key thing here is that the technology has moved on. We're looking risk-based versus rules-based. Tetra definitely falls in that risk-based view, looking at utilizing unsupervised machine learning. Now, unsupervised doesn't mean that no one looks at it and the, uh, the computer does it all. It just means that typically you can take multiple sets of data, much more than has typically been available from the rules-based systems, and you let the algorithms and the machine run through the data first. Off the back of that, those algorithms look at normality. So how does the customer behave? How do you or I behave? How does an entity behave? And off the back of that, there are anomalous behavior that shows suspicious behavior away from what the normal is. Thank you, Mark. Only a few additions to that. First of all, 
I found that uh, the way Thetaray looks at the data, learns normality, and based on that, detect what is unusual, is actually exactly what the FATF recommendations expect from financial institutions to do. To learn their normality, what is the usual business behavior of their customer, and based on that, what is abnormal. So I think this is why when banks started trying our system for AML, it was such a good match for their needs. Having been part of many projects in implementing AML and transaction technology, I always know we come back to struggles, and especially when it comes down to data and data quality. Mark, I do know that you have some experience in when it comes down to lists and list management as well. What's your view? Uh, well, I think, yeah, Sam and I worked on a project before looking at not only, you know, the financial institutions, but also the regulators in terms of data and data quality. And you're absolutely right, Marie. Quality of data is very, very important. And keeping that data and keeping it up to date and maintaining it is, is critical. And any AI system and any rules-based system needs good, good amounts of information. The one thing I have been impressed with Thetaray is that even when you've got limited sets of, of information, it can still identify suspicious behavior, which helps move things forward. Do you have any examples you can give that can illustrate how the technology goes about its work? The first thing that attracted me to working in Tetaray was a very uh, sophisticated correspondent banking scheme that was known as the Russian Landromat, where one of the banks in the UK asked us to look at all his payments for six years and find if this bank was exposed to this scheme. And the system very accurately took 200 million messages and found the actual 56 shell companies that were this bank's customer and were involved. In other cases, we found the illegal gambling network where we thought that it was terrorist financing due to the low sums and the fact that there was one external account connected with many customers receiving low sums from them every month. And in another case, uh, the bank that worked with us got a confirmation from the regulator that we actually found a terrorist financing case where there was a teacher collecting a few hundred euros per month, then sending them through to another country after a few months. We've spoken to a few people on this podcast about not only consumer behavior, but corporate behavior has changed radically. So cash-intensive businesses aren't receiving the same cash because people aren't transacting the same. Conversely, we're hearing from FATF and places, things like trade-based money laundering are expected to escalate during this period. What do you think about that in terms of overall transaction monitoring? The behavior is changing for all of us, the good customers and the bad actors. So only if you have the unsupervised machine learning or the, the uniqueness of the artificial intelligence, such as in Tetary, to always compare the specific customer behavior to his history, in which case all of us now are anomalies because we, all of us change the way we behave, but at the same time to all the population. So then you will be able to see from a transactional point of view, which parts of the customer audience that you have is really acting weird or differently. Another thing that is interesting in that period, you have mentioned the fact that the use of healthcare is increasing. Now we need to remember that we also had uh, some sanctions breaches around health services. We found for one of the banks that work with us that a customer of this bank worked with another company that is related to pharmaceutical industry that went directly to Iran. The business activity of the customer that we detected was not related to healthcare at all. One of them was in the sports business. One of them was in construction business. They had no justification to work with any company from the healthcare industry. They just used it 
to move funds from and to sanctioned country. So some of these new environments and new risks that we identified due to the crisis are continuing some breaches that we saw in the past. And some of them, as you said, are new. And in order to detect them, you must have ability to compare between each customer and all his segment. But that also leads to another problem because you might have new data, you might have new transaction patterns, and you might be able to to detect that or not because then you need to really adjust and fine-tune your different scenarios within your current system. And we do know that from experience, that may take time because it's an approval process and banks perhaps are not that quick on their feet to do that. Yeah, the banks and traditional rule-based systems have been very slow to be able to adapt and change, especially when you're looking at behavior and profiles of of customers. In in the current COVID-19 environment shows that you need to be able to adapt and change to customer behavior. And therefore, you need to be able to look at multiple sets of features, not limited sets uh, of thresholds and parameters that are limited and can't track how a customer behaves, how they change from day to day. In the past few months, even before the COVID-19 crisis, We have seen publications by Wolfsburg Group, by FATF, by European Banking Federation, all calling to move to effective compliance program. Effective compliance program and effective risk-based approach cannot rely on static rules and thresholds. With static rules and thresholds, we just define what to ignore. We do not define what to detect because it is important. If you really want to be able to be agile, to be able to adjust to, to changing circumstances, you cannot rely on static rules. I'm hoping the two of you listened to our podcast on Swedbank, where we focused on the regulator's findings around transaction monitoring. I'm interested to know what your take was in terms of the regulator's comments, because for me, I was quite surprised how risk-based the regulator's comments were. It's not something we see very often. Okay, the Swedbank case was indeed very interesting from the comments from the regulator, because as uh, you have mentioned, it was the first time that regulator said, okay, I don't care anymore about how systems can afford you to detect specific behaviors. This is my basic expectation from you. You need to be able to identify if a customer is, is behaving unusual to his profile. After all, you've collected all his data and business profile in the KYC. So you should be able to monitor that. That's not a rule-based approach. That's a risk-based approach and the combination of transaction monitoring KYC data, something that according to legacy systems was not possible at all. Now, with the new technology, you can embed KYC data and create business profile for the customer. You can really quickly say what is the expected business behavior for that profile and then adjust it to a changing environment because you have a dynamic analysis and dynamic normality analysis. Why is it that so many times you see people have one system for KYC and it's like the transaction monitoring system is totally operating independent and doesn't seem to talk to it? Is is that a legacy problem, do you think? Yes, um, I think the challenge is often is people look at data and haven't realized how data can be used for insight and that risk-based approach. So typically, a KYC onboarding process may be just used for that certain product. There is no thought about what other use that data could be used for, whether it's for transaction monitoring, whether it's for when someone else wants to be onboarded with another product. There is, there is multiple sets of data being asked for multiple sets of times, 
and they're all typically in different systems. The idea would be that they all come together, and this is why there are multiple data lakes and enterprise uh, data management systems being talked about within the banks. The challenge there, though, is that you spend a lot of money on a system, you, in, you clean the data, and then you think it's all good and done. The problem is, is that that data degrades, just like with any, any other thing, you need to maintain and look after that data. And if you can pull it all together, then actually there should be a feedback loop. And as Yaron said, if we start to look at a KYC profile and the ongoing monitoring of the KYC profile, the profile of the KYC should directly link into transaction monitoring. And there should be a feedback loop of how, does, how do I behave within my, within my transactions? And that should directly affect my KYC profile as well. I think that you're spot on, Mark. However, it can also be a question of how the bank is organized, depending on which department is allowed to use what kind of systems and therefore also the data. So definitely, it's not just aligning the data sources in a huge, enormous data lake and trying to get the systems to work with each other. It's also about getting the people to understand and to work with each other and share the information on a, on a level that they are authorized to do. Absolutely, Maria. I'll go back to the lens view of data. The lens view of data is I'm working with market trading data. I'm working with KYC data. I'm working with credit risk data. Data ultimately is data, and we can actually look at it through multiple lenses in one place. And if you can keep that in one place and maintain it, then actually you can add additional attributes dependent on the scenario that's required. And therefore, you can link transaction monitoring to list management to screening. They all, and this is where your link analysis comes in off the back of it, to be able to get that full view to help identify those suspicious uh, actions that are done by the bad actors. I know you've heard the podcast and we have an upcoming second podcast where we actually talk about the number of entities related to one high-risk customer at the Estonian branch of Swedbank. You'll hear more about it in the podcast, but essentially they had hundreds of legal entities affiliated with this customer and had a number of transactions which seemed to switch back and forth between the different legal entities. There was sort of a feeling that because they were happening inside the same bank, they were somehow less risky. Imagine if you had your tool back then when this client was first being set up and was expanding all its entities. How could it have helped to detect much, much earlier what this client was doing with all of its structure? So first of all, I think we could have identified after a few months and not after a few years. I truly believe that if those banks had a similar technology to what we have today, even for the Russian laundromat scheme that we heard of a few years ago or the scheme that was published now, they could prevent it from being that large. I mean that you can detect it after a month or two, thanks to our system, to see the interlinks between different customers to see the unusual patterns of behavior. So there are several parameters that you can measure that could highlight that something unusual is going on, whether they are not related to the same industry, whether they have same beneficial owners. Why should someone send money from one pocket to another all the time and to the third pocket and to his fourth packet? If it's the same owner, they pay fees for that. Does it make sense? Is it rational to do such activity? Well, we're coming back to the circular transaction and you're definitely right there, Joran, because the customer needs to pay, you say, fees and all that. But do you think there could be a criminal intent behind that? I try to be modest, both about how I perceive things and both about Tetere. Not everything that we see is a criminal activity, okay? It's, it's important to remember. But with Tetare, we definitely identify unusual activity. Once you look at this unusual activity, it's for you to judge whether 
it should be related to something that is potentially suspicious or crime or something like that, or very unique business behavior, but then you can interact with the customer, maybe propose him different services or products or update the KYC because it seems that you did not understand the type of business that he's doing. Uh, so it could serve all the purposes and definitely banks should be able to identify something that is unusual and potentially suspicious on a timely manner. We have lots of time. Now we're at home, possibly to read, to train, although I suspect you're very busy with work. But tell me, over the last six to 12 months, has there been any cases particularly caught your attention from a financial crime perspective? If you look at it, especially in the correspondent banking channel and especially the likes of Westpac, just because of the seniority level that it raised, and and I think they raised the profile of this type of high value transactions and do you understand your banking relationships, not only your underlying clients, but the relationships of who you're banking with through the full path of the of the messaging, whether that's with Swift, SEPA, or other types of service. You've then got obviously within the Nordics uh, a number number of examples in the uh, in the Benelux as well. I think it really raises the profile of understanding how technology could be used, but also how to both, as Yaron says, look at a risk based approach, but also what's the opportunity to develop the relationship with the clients that you've got, and how could you drive revenue. What do you see then as the potential financial crime threat during this period that people should be mindful of? I think all of us see it, and I, I, I see it personally as well. I get so many phone calls and text messages from fraudsters. They know that everybody's at home. Some of us are not used to digitalization and working only remotely with our banks. Some people that don't have that awareness and experience, and they take advantage of that. And there are many fraud schemes running now, trade of health products, uh, faked health products. Some people order masks or other medicines. Either they get something that is really not good for use, or they don't get anything at all, and they do pay for it. So these fraud schemes now are increasing tremendously. But I think the the main thing that people who are responsible for controls will take from that experience is that like uh, seeing that the king is naked in the story, how did we spend so much time and effort on doing redundant things instead of focusing on the risks themselves? So Mark, even outside of work, what do you think is the one positive that we can take out of this I think that after for several months, even before this crisis, everybody were talking about effectiveness, about risk-based approach, about doing the right things and focusing on what is meaningful. I think this period taught us a good lesson that if we will not do that, we will stay without any option to do anything at all. So first, we need to focus on effectiveness in what we do, and then we will be able to progress in each situation. I was talking to one of head of FCC today who said that actually this has really driven them to start making risk-based decisions because they've been forced into it. And as Yaron said, they haven't got time to what's nice to have, what's an upgrade. It's actually focused on what's critical, what do we need, where do we need it, and, and therefore things are being based on a risk-based decision rather on, on the rules. So on that note, I would just like to say on behalf of Sam and me, thank you so much for taking the time and effort to join us. And um, if you would like to do as Mark or Jerome to appear on the podcast, if you have some interesting topics you would like to us to, to discuss, please reach out to us on captivatedaudience.eu or simply just drop us a line on LinkedIn. For now, thank you and please stay safe.